Amen. Saul Company, how we doing? Good, good. If you guys have your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 17. Go ahead and flip there. Um, well, I want to start with a question. Um, when was the last time you knew you needed to do something, but you didn't, okay? Specific examples. Uh, have you ever talked to someone with food in their teeth? Okay, raise your hand. Food in their teeth, you're talking to them and you're like, yo, should I say something? Like, I can't stop looking at it, right? There's like this, some spinach in their teeth. Maybe you have food in your teeth and no one's told you. Uh, I'm telling you. Um, or maybe when you're going out to eat, anybody like tomatoes here? Anybody? I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. Anybody not like it? Amen, these are my people, okay? So you go to a restaurant and you're like, hey, <laughs> thanks. thanks for the feedback. And I'm like, yo, no tomatoes on there. And they come, they give me my food and there's tomatoes on there, okay? Um, but maybe you're a little nervous to say something to the waitress, right? You don't wanna, you know, step on their toes or make them, unco- like make them uncomfortable so you don't say anything, right? Um, I think a lot of us might be wired that way, right? We, we know we should do something. We know we should say something, but we don't. And I think that that is often the kind of mindset that we can have when it comes to the topic of evangelism, right? I think we're well aware of what Jesus says in scripture, right? That, that we're to go and to make disciples, to go and to share the gospel, but we don't do it. We know we're supposed to share our faith, but most of us, if we're gonna be honest, are frozen. When we talk about evangelism, maybe there's a lot of shame that comes with it, but either way, we don't move toward unbelievers to share the gospel. And so my question for you is, man, is that true for you? I know that that can be true for me. Maybe uh, a couple of roadblocks for you is that maybe it's because of your fear of rejection, right? You don't wanna be that guy or that girl. We all know what I'm talking about there, right? Maybe like a Bible thumper, right? You don't wanna be that guy or you, know, you don't wanna force your beliefs you know, into somebody. And so it's like, man, you don't wanna say much. You, you fear maybe their rejection or maybe it's because you don't feel ready, right? I know this is a big problem for me sometimes. I'm like, I don't know, like, what would I say? Like, uh, you know, what, what if they ask me a hard question, right? And I don't know how to respond to them. That's a terrifying thing, right? What do I do if I don't feel ready? And so those things can freeze you when God calls you to go. You don't share. And so the question, our passage, and the question that we're gonna be asking tonight is this, what does it look like to have a lifestyle of sharing your faith? Maybe that's a question you're asking, man, what does it look like for me to have a lifestyle of sharing my faith? It's really great to hear about what God's doing overseas. It's really great to see what God's doing at different church plants, but what about me and what, what do I do when I'm taking classes at DMAC, right? Gosh, go Bears, right? Go Bears. Go Bears. How can I be faithful to have a lifestyle of sharing my faith even now? How do I become the kind of person who isn't frozen, but who actually obeys God's command to go and to share your faith freely? So if you're not already there, flip over to Acts chapter 17. Before we start reading, it's always good to be aware of what's happening in the passage before this. I'm just gonna set up the context a little bit. So up to this point, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're on a missionary journey. They're going out and they're sharing their faith with people who've never heard the name of Jesus. And so they're in Thessalonica. Paul is sharing his faith. He's in one of the synagogues and man, people are coming to faith left and right. I mean, it's a move of God. And this is happening specifically within the synagogues, right? Where the Jews were. And so these uh, Jewish people are coming to Christ. They're converting to Christianity. And that is incredible. But the Jewish leaders are not too fond of that. And so what do they do? 
um, they start a riot. They literally start a riot. They get a bunch of people. They, they don't wanna do it themselves, but they'll go get some other people to start a riot on their behalf to get Paul, Silas, and Timothy the heck out of Thessalonica. And so it works. They go out of Thessalonica and then they go to a place called Berea. They go to Berea and Paul says, you know what? You can kick me out of Thessalonica, but I'm still gonna be on mission. So he goes and he does the same exact thing. He goes and he shares his faith. People are getting saved left and right. And the Jewish leaders hear the same thing again. What do they do? They do a riot again. They start a riot to get them out of Berea. And so it's like this constant, like, okay, we're seeing this pattern. And now Paul is sent out of Berea to just be protected. The Christians are like, hey, we should really protect this guy. So let's send him out of Berea and let's get him over to Athens. And so while Silas and Timothy are kind of trying to hold down the fort in Berea, Paul is in Athens. And it's as he's waiting for his partners to get there, he doesn't just wait around. Paul, he actually does something. And what we're gonna see tonight is we're gonna see that Paul is modeling for Christians what it means to be on mission where you're at. So note takers in the room, we got three points. Uh, number one, a moved heart. Number two, a lifestyle. And number three, a waste of time. So those are my three points. And the question is, how do you live on mission, right? Maybe you're here and you're like, I haven't shared, if I'm gonna be honest, Joe, man, I, I don't think I've ever shared my faith. Or maybe it's been a really long time. How can I kind of get into a consistent pattern of sharing my faith? How can I do this as part of the way I'm living my life? Look with me, starting in verse 16. It says this. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show off trying to say? And others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, hey, can, can we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we wanna know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So point number one is this, a moved heart. A moved heart. See, Paul has just been moved to Berea where a riot to run him out of town took place. And now he's in the beautiful city of Athens. You're like, Joe, tell me about Athens. I'll tell you about Athens, okay? Um, it was a leading center for learning in the arts. This was the place to be. It was a place of cultural influence and the buildings in that place just were incredible. And so here's Paul. He's kind of walking around town. He's taking in the beautiful scenery, kind of like the, the polished white marble statues, the towering pillars, right? It's this beautiful picture. And then something happens. Paul is overwhelmed with emotion. Look down with me at verse 16 again. It says that he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Guys, the word translated deeply distressed literally means to be provoked or to be upset, to be almost angry or frustrated, right? So he's looking around and he's thinking, man, how could this be, right? These people, 
the, the true, the one true God is right in front of them, but man, they're, they're missing him and they're worshiping these idols that are never gonna actually satisfy him. And so he's deeply distressed. He looked around and he saw that these people were worshiping false gods when the true God was right in front of them. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worshiped the created. And this is breaking his heart. You see, instead of the invisible, eternal God, they worshiped a visible, fading statue, thinking that this piece of wood or stone could hear their prayers, give them prosperity, bless them, protect them. They trusted these statues to give them hope, to give them happiness, significance, and security. They're bowing down to these idols. And Paul looks at this and his heart breaks. He's deeply distressed. And friends, this idolatry still exists today. And you're like, I don't see any statues anywhere. You're right. There aren't statues anywhere. But there are plenty of things that us as human beings can make first above Jesus. There are plenty plenty of things that us as humans can look to other than Jesus to find our hope, to find our happiness, significance, and our security. And so, man, maybe it's the idol of social status or approval, right? We can trust that our happiness and significance can be found in the applause of people, right? So when people accept us, man, we're on the mountaintop, right? Someone tells me I look good, I'm feeling good, right? Uh, (laughs) But when you get rejected, man, you almost feel completely deflated, right? And so the problem with this idol is that it's a roller coaster of feeling good and then feeling worthless. Or maybe it's the idol of job or academic success. You wanna achieve, achieve, achieve. And so, man, that's not a bad thing. We ought to be good workers, but we trust our job to make us feel safe and significant. And so what happens is we work crazy long hours. We burn ourselves out And we want to do our job perfectly. Why? Not merely to be good workers, but to ultimately make us feel like we have control over our own destiny and to prove to ourselves and others that we are significant, that we can get something done, right? So the problem is that it leads to burnout, can lead to exhaustion, and it thins out our relationships. Guys, the list can go on in our lost friends and family. They're around us and they're worshiping idols that do not satisfy them. Guys, only they were made for Jesus and nothing else will satisfy them. In this very fact, it had broken Paul's heart. And so the question for you is, does it break yours? When you see your friends and family who do not know Jesus, does your heart break for them knowing that, man, they're worshiping things that will never satisfy There's a theologian that says that our hearts are like idol factories. We're always trying to, if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something else. And what is it? Because whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, it's going to let you down. See, Salt Company, to share the gospel, you need a heart that moves for the lost. You need a heart that moves for the lost, knowing that the hope, happiness, significance, and security that they are looking for will never be found in their idols, but it'll only ever be found in Jesus. So is your heart moved for the lost? Ask yourself that question. Is your heart moved for the lost? Because when it does, like Paul, you're gonna, be, you're gonna move toward them, right? Your heart moves for the lost and you move toward them as well. You can't help but share the gospel with the lost when your heart is moved for them. Listen to verse 16 and 17. Listen to how Paul reacts. So it says, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. And here's what happens as a result. 
Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. See, Paul was moved for the lost and he moved toward them. Your heart can't break for reaching lost people and not move, uh, move toward them to engage them with the gospel. Friends, we need a heart that moves for lost people. You see, Paul, he could have just kind of went about his own business, right? He was kind of on like a mini vacation, right? He's, he's waiting for his ministry partners to come into uh, Athens and he's waiting. And he could have just enjoyed the scenery. He could have just taken it all in, but he didn't. Why? Why did he have to do something? Because he saw the people around him as ministry. He saw the people around him as ministry, as people who don't know Jesus but need to. But what about you? How do you see people around you? How do you see the lost people in your life? You see, I think that there are four ways that we can often view people. Um, Four ways that we can often view people. And what I wanna do is I just wanna list them off and I wanna describe what they each are. And I hope that it's helpful as you seek to, man, see people the way that God does. The first way, or I'm just gonna list them off. We can see people as machinery. We can see people as scenery. Third, we can see people as enemies. Or lastly, how God would have it, ministry. Machinery, scenery, enemy, or ministry. So let me just kind of explain what each one of these are. So machinery, okay? This is when you see people as people who primarily exist to serve you, right? Maybe it's, uh, it's, it's the waitress, it's the mailman, right? It's the cashier, it's the teacher, right? You don't seek to get to know them because why would you, right? It's the cashier, right? Um, maybe it's the person making your sub at Subway, right? Uh, man, you don't seek to get to know them. They kind of just function in your life as people who just, they just do their job and I go on my merry way, they go on my, like whatever, and and so they're, they're machinery in your life. For number two, scenery. Another way that you can see people is scenery. You see people mostly as those who kind of just take up space, right? I can be guilty of this. You have no problem with them necessarily, right? I'm sure they're probably great people, um, but you don't care to get to know them. So this is maybe the person sitting a row ahead of you in class every single day, Maybe it's the people in front of you in the checkout line. Maybe it's your neighbor next door. Their primary function in your mind is that they just kind of fill space, right? Again, you don't hate them, but you just don't really engage them. And then third, enemy. This is when we assume the worst in people. I'm guilty of this. If there's any one of these three that I struggle with the most, man, I can, <laughs> I can uh, man, it's, I can often see people as enemies and Man, I can assume the worst of people and even just to kind of define this a little bit more, man, it's when we can see them as people primarily to be argued with and proved wrong as opposed to people we need to move toward and love. That's when we see people as enemies. And that is probably one of the greatest hindrances to the Christian testimony in the world. We primarily engage with people as enemies, you see, it's, maybe it's the person who cuts you off on the highway, right? Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen, amen right? Uh, it's the boss at work who belittles you. It's the person with a different theological stance than you. Can you believe it? It's the annoying person in class or at work. You know what I'm talking about, right? We can assume the worst in people. Instead of moving toward them, we move away from them. 
And all of those fail. You see, those first three are sinful ways of looking at other people. But there is an alternative that Jesus gives us and that Paul models. And it's to see people as ministry. This is when you see people as souls who need Jesus. This is when you see people as opportunities to show and to share the love of God with them, right? This is when you see people as those that God loves and is already at work in, and man, you just get to be a part of it. Man, we wanna see people as ministry. You see, Paul could have seen these people as scenery or even enemies, right? In verse 17 and 18, it says that, they, that there were Epicureans, Stoics, and Jews, and some of them mocked him. He could have treated them as enemies, but no, he still saw them as ministry. So when you're not seeing people as ministry, which category do you find yourself falling into? If you have it in your notes, maybe circle it or put a star next to it. And which one do you struggle with the most? Guys, I was at, um, I was at DMAC a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Go Bears. Go Bears. That's right. So I was at DMAC a couple of weeks ago, and I'm hanging out with a student that I'm discipling, and we have our, we have our Bibles open in Building 5. And um, this guy just comes up to us, and he's just like, this looks horrible. And I'm like, uh-oh, right? In my, my, my first thought is like, this is an enemy, right? I need to argue with him. And I knew that that was my tendency. So I was like, okay, I need to immediately switch and remember, man, this is a ministry opportunity. And so by God's grace, I'm like, okay, how do I engage with this guy? I don't know anything about him. I don't, he doesn't know me, but he's coming up and talking to me about how it's horrible. I have my Bible open. And, um, but I get to know him and turns out, he thought that we were just doing homework. So two things. He thought that we were just doing homework. So he was trying to like make conversation like, ha ha, homework sucks, okay? And um, I'm like, nice. Uh, <laughs> and then he knew the guy that I was discipling and I had no idea. So I'm glad I didn't treat him as an enemy, right? Um, but it was great because he was like, uh, is this religion? And, and I was like, I mean, you can die on the hill of calling... Christianity, religion, whatever. Religion literally just means that you believe in a higher power. I certainly believe in a higher power. His name's Jesus, right? The one true God. So he, um, so I was like, yeah, it's religion. Um, do you have a history with religion? And we just go off and we talk and I'm able to share the gospel with this guy. And what's crazy um, is, man, I could have easily dismissed him, not talked to him, right? I don't know this guy, like, man, what if, what if God's at work in this guy's heart? And he didn't receive Jesus. And so, man, pray for him. He knows the gospel. He knows how to receive Jesus. God's at work in his heart. And so if you wanna become a person who shares the gospel, you first need to have a heart that moves for the lost. And not only that, but that you would see them as a ministry opportunity to move toward and not to move away from, to see them as ministry. And while that's all well and good, how do you actually start the conversation, right? Like, how are you supposed to share your faith, right? What sorts of things do you say? What do you do? Point number two is this, a lifestyle. A lifestyle. So after preaching the gospel to anyone who would hear, the people start to uh, get really curious. And uh, here's what they do. They ask him to, to go to the Areopagus, right? You probably haven't heard of the, of, of the Areopagus. Essentially, 
Um, imagine like TED Talks, right? So they essentially asked Paul, hey, come give a TED Talk on Christianity. And so he goes to the Areopagus. There's just this giant platform in front of an ocean of people. And he's asked to share the gospel. Listen to verse 19 again. It says that they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus and said, hey, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we wanna know what these things mean. Tell us, Paul, what's this Christianity thing? It sounds kind of interesting. And so standing on this platform and looking at the sea of people, he takes a deep breath and he begins to speak. And so friends, when an opportunity arises to share your faith, will you be ready? Do you know how you would share? See, Paul was ready and in his speech, we're gonna discover a strategy for sharing the gospel a strategy that you can actually steal from Paul and kind of keep in your back pocket so you can have a lifestyle of sharing your faith no matter who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can use this. So what was the strategy? As we're gonna see in our passage, he did three things. And I think that if you do these three things, man, um, God's gonna use you to have a lifestyle of evangelism and sharing your faith. And so here's the strategy. That's what my friend John LaRavia uh, calls the three C's. And we see this laid out in, in the way he shares the gospel, three C's, and I'm just gonna give them to you and then we're gonna look at the text and see where we find it. So the three C's are this, connect, challenge, complete. Connect, challenge, complete. So connect, what do we mean by that? Guys, the first C is all about meeting people where they're at and building a bridge with them, right? Build a bridge to them. It's entering relationships as a learner, right? You're, you don't know anything about them, but you can begin to ask questions. Primarily, friends, to, to try to be aware of what God's already doing in their heart. That's what you're, you're, you're learning about their story. And so you're trying to identify, man, God, what are you up to in their heart? And how can I be a part of that? So let's look at how Paul does this. Listen to verse 22. Verse 22, he starts off in the Areopagus and he says this, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. You see, Paul, he was meeting them where they're at. He observed and he said, okay, you guys are worshipers, okay? And you're worshiping an unknown God. And so he's learning the culture. He's learning these people. He's meeting them where they're at. He's gotten to know them and even looked around to see the things that they love the most. He connected with them. And friends, by connecting with them first, he was making it easy for the people to want him to share the gospel. He was making it easy for him to share the gospel and for them to receive it. Guys, um, I'm not the most amazing evangelist in the world, but I would guess that if you start off with, um, you're a sinner and you're going to hell, probably is not going to go great, right? I think we all know what we're talking about, like the like, the picket signs and everything, you know, you've seen pictures, maybe you've seen them in person. Um, that might not be the best place to start if you're trying to uh, uh, connect with them, right? And so he connects with them. Um, and he says, man, listen, I know that you guys are worshipers. And so he begins there. He says, hey, I see, I've observed, I've learned. And so he's connecting with them. And so the first step toward living missionally is to connect with people. Make it easy for people to want you to share the gospel with them. Be a friend to them. Guys, if you meet somebody, ask them their name. Use their name. Ask them about their hobbies and their interests. Ask them about their job or school. Man, ask them about their life, right? 
You're wanting to build a bridge with them because you want to see, man, God, what are you doing in their life and how can I be a part of it? And be listening in for what God is doing. So um, a couple of weeks ago after Salt, uh, me and the rest of the staff went out to a restaurant and um, we could have really easily seen our waiter as machinery, right? Get us our dang drinks and food, we're hungry, okay? Um, but he had a name tag. And so we're like, man, I'm just gonna get to know him. And so we were asking him questions. I mean, guys, nothing profound. We were just trying to connect with him and be kind to him. And so anytime that he would come over, we would try to laugh with him and get to know him. And we'd, again, uh, we'd call him by his name, right? It, it, It dignifies people when you call them by their name. And so we're just trying to get to know him. And so guys, nothing profound. We're just trying to be kind people and, um, but as, um, as we're getting to know him and as we're asking questions, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, God, what, what are you doing in this man's life? I don't think it's a coincidence that all of us Christians showed up to this place and you're our waiter, right? Like, I do believe that God is sovereign and I do believe that God loves this man. And so, um, man, <laughs> at the end of the night, he asks us about Salt Company because all of us were wearing Salt merch. <laughs> Classic. Um, and so we're just talking and, uh, and eventually like, so he's like, yeah, I heard that, like, is it a part of this church? We're like, no, it's part of this church. And I just look at him and I'm like, hey, do you belong to a church at all? And so we, we give literally all, all we did is we asked him, hey, do you belong to a church? And we invited him to church. Guys, was that an exhaustive um, gospel presentation? No, it wasn't, but it was connecting with a person. It was being a part of what God was doing in their life. Friends, sometimes I think we think that being missional is, is when you can kind of get out this canned presentation of the gospel, you just kind of like vomit it on somebody and you're like, whew, all right, great, see ya, dip out, right? But man, sometimes being missional means that you're just connecting with them over conversation. And so friends, guess what? Next time I see that guy, I'm gonna pick up where I left off. I plan to go to that restaurant again and I'll call him by his name and I'll get to know him a little bit more and just pray, God, what is it that you're doing in his life that I can be a part of? And so C, we want to, um, uh, yeah, I lost it. Connect, there it is. <laughs> second one, okay, I promise I know what I'm doing, all right? Um, second, that's great that we're connecting, but the second thing that we see Paul do to share the gospel is this, he challenges them. He challenges them. What do we mean by that? Guys, when we're seeking to share the gospel, our second step is to challenge whatever they worship other than God. Man, we need to love people enough to challenge whatever they're worshiping other than God himself. Challenge the idol that they're living for and help them see that it's ultimately going to let them down. Friends, you should love your friends, your family, your coworkers, whoever it is. Love them enough to say, man, what you're worshiping is always going to disappoint you. Let me show you the God that you're actually looking for. Let me show you the God that you're created for. So when when does Paul do uh, do this? The first thing he does is in verse 27 where he affirms their desire to worship. He says, guys, listen, it's natural for you to worship because God has created you with the desire to worship. Look with me at verse 27. It says this, speaking of God, Paul says this, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He says, guys, you were created to worship. 
That's why you're worshiping, right? He's kind of affirming that. And here's what he's telling us, friends in the room. For all of humanity, it's not a question of do they worship? It's what do they worship? No matter who they are, they might seem self-sufficient. The way that God has wired our hearts is that we are wired to worship King Jesus, to be satisfied in him, but sin has, has, has corrupted our hearts. And so now we're gonna look to worship anything other than Jesus. And it's always going to let us down. It's not a matter of do they worship, but what do they worship? And then he challenges them. Verse 23, go up a little bit. Verse 23, Paul says this. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, here's the challenge. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So here's what was happening at this time. Uh, the uh, people in Athens wanted to make sure that they covered all of their bases. They wanted to make sure that uh, they had idols for every God that existed because man, if they forgot a God and they didn't worship him, like they don't wanna tick him off. And so they would get you know, wood or stone and they would make this idol and they'd just say, well, we don't know if there's another God, but yeah, to an unknown God, I guess. And so they would worship this unknown God. And in verse 23, Paul essentially says, guys, what you're worshiping right now is actually going to disappoint you, right? These idols don't hear your prayers. They don't receive your worship because they do not exist. And then he says, guys, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In other words, he's saying, let me show you what you've been looking for. There's that desire to worship. Let me show you what you've been looking for. Let me show you the God that you were created to worship. And so he tells them about the one true God. Verse 24, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. I think it's interesting that he mentions that he does not live in shrines made by hands. Isn't that what they're worshiping? Shrines made by hands. And so he's saying, you're worshiping the wrong thing, friend. You're worshiping the wrong thing. You're bowing down to idols you think will give you hope, happiness, significance, satisfaction, but they never will. They're pieces of wood and stone and your heart was made for the eternal God and nothing else will satisfy. You were created to worship the one who created you. So Paul challenges what they worship other than God and friend, you're called to do the same thing. And if your heart is deeply distressed, if your heart moves for the lost, you would have the love and courage within your heart to help your friends see that what they're worshiping will not satisfy them. Man, don't, do you really wanna see your friends and your family continue to live for things that are gonna disappoint them that can be easily taken away? Do you want that for them? See, after connecting with people and establishing trust, he challenges them. He doesn't go right into challenging, he connects with them first. And guys, sometimes for us to challenge people, sometimes it's simply just saying, hey, hey friend, um, this is somebody that you've connected with, that you build trust with, and you say, hey, listen, um, it, it, it seems like you've, uh, man, you, you focus a lot on what people think about you. And man, I've been there, but it's crushing. And it seems like it's crushing you. Man, Jesus, he's begun to set me free from that. It, his unconditional love, his his care for me, man, that gives me confidence. Do you want that? I mean, it can be something as simple as that, right? Hey, 
this idol that you're worshiping is, is, is disappointing you. It's, it's taking up all of your time. It's making you so anxious and stressed out. And Jesus can satisfy. We wanna challenge them. So then there's one more. The third C is this, complete. Complete. So in other words, complete their story in Christ. Complete their story in Christ. In other words, give them an invitation to come to Jesus. That's what that third one means. You, you, you've connected with them, you've challenged them, and now you can complete their story in Christ. Listen to Paul do this in verse 30 and 31. Look down with me if you can. Paul says this, after saying all of this about the gospel, he says this, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Guys, here's what he's saying. He's saying, friends, God has been so incredibly gracious to us. He looked down from heaven at our idol worship, us turning away from him, profaning his name by worshiping false gods and sinning against him. And he doesn't strike us down and kill us. That's a grace. And he says, you know what? Instead of doing that, he's held, back his, he's held back his judgment. And now he's calling us to, all we have to do is repent from our sin and trust in Jesus to be forgiven of all of our sin and to have a God who deeply, truly satisfies us. And we need to do that because there is a day coming when it says that Jesus will come back and he will judge in righteousness. All sinners and people who have made idols. And so, he completes their story in Christ. He invites them to follow Jesus. You see, because he started with connection and has out of love and concern challenged them, he's able to complete their story in Christ by calling them to follow Jesus. So friends, when you share the gospel, make sure that you always give them a clear invitation to follow Jesus. Give them a clear invitation. Give them a chance to accept it or reject it. Guys, one of my biggest problems I, I used to have uh, is when I would share the gospel with people, I'd sit down and I'd be like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Da, 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 da. I'd go through the whole thing. And then I would look at them and be like, yeah, so uh, what do you think? Sweet. Ugh, right? Like I didn't know where to take the conversation. So I was like, uh, Jesus uh, did the evangelism thing that they didn't get saved. That's weird. Um, but it's because I missed a, key part, right? Man, I connected, man, I challenged them, but I forgot to complete their story in Christ. I forgot to give them a chance to follow Jesus. And so you can just ask them this, and you could write this down if you wanted. I ask people this, hey, what do you think about this? Second question, do you want to make Jesus your savior? Super clear, right? Do you want to make Jesus your savior? Or another, word, another way that I like to say it is, hey, do you want to have a personal relationship with God? So there's a clear invitation to follow Jesus. And then you do the awkward thing. You let them respond, which sometimes means silence, okay? Silence is awkward sometimes. Deal with it, people, okay? Uh, give them an invitation to follow Jesus and let them respond. So guys, to share the gospel, we not only need a heart that moves for the lost, but a plan to move toward them. And a way that we can do that is to follow the three C's. There are other ways of doing it, friends, but I think this is a good one. Connecting, challenging, and completing.
Well, that's great and all. How'd they respond to the gospel? Like Paul just shared the gospel with them. Now what? Like he gives them a chance to respond. How do they respond? Look with me starting in verse 32. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, hey, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So guys, many people rejected him, and only a few believed. So was it a failure uh, or a waste of time? I mean, this wasn't really a, you know, a successful ministry in terms of numbers, right? Didn't look too great. So was it a waste of time? That's our third point, a waste of time. And so was it a waste? Was it, did Paul just waste his time sharing the gospel? I mean, did he just butcher that thing? Um, no. It wasn't a waste for two reasons. Number one, people got one inch closer. People got one inch closer. Guys, I don't know if you know this. Statistically, it takes about seven times for people to hear the gospel to receive it. It takes about seven times for people to hear the message of the gospel and to receive Jesus as their savior. And guys, this could have been time number six. You see, even though they rejected it this time, they heard the gospel and it brought them just an inch closer to faith in Jesus. God used it. So was it a waste? No. Friends, there are gonna be times when you share the gospel and people reject you. That happened with a lot of us this past Sunday. Some of the leaders say amen. Amen. (laughs) A lot of us got rejected, right? We went out and shared the gospel with strangers this past Sunday. But is that a failure? No, because whether we see it or not, God uses that gospel conversation in their heart. God knew from eternity past that you would bring the gospel to that person. And he loves that man or woman. He is pursuing that man or woman. And guess what? You got to be a part of that story by simply sharing the gospel with them and trusting God with the results. And sometimes we beat ourselves up over the fact that we didn't convert people to Jesus. Guys, you can't control that. Friends, you know what you can control? You can control your faithfulness to share the gospel. And you say, God, I trust you. Man, I'm gonna pray for this brother. I'm gonna pray for this sister to receive Jesus because man, I believe that what scripture says is true, that what they're worshiping other than Jesus is going to crush them. And Jesus alone is the answer to their heart's deepest longings. And so it wasn't a waste. And it's never a failure when you're going out and sharing the gospel. Number two, it wasn't a waste of time because people got saved. People got saved. You see, it was worth it because a soul is worth a million rejections. A soul is worth a million rejections. You see, Salt Company, there are people that are in your life, in your workplace, in your class, in line at the dang grocery store, right? Maybe at Aldi, okay? Uh, But there are people all around you who are ready to receive Jesus. Ready to receive Jesus, but nobody has asked them. Nobody cares enough to see them, not merely as an enemy, not merely as machinery, not merely as scenery, but that you would see them as ministry. And by God's grace, they would come to faith in Christ. Guys, I wanna close with a story. 
Um, you might already know this story, but uh, so my, uh, back in the 70s, my, my grandfather was a factory worker and he was far from Jesus, did not know Jesus. Um, and man, he was worshiping the idol of alcohol. He, um, man, he was the kind of guy who couldn't have just one drink. He had to have like four or five or six. So he's worshiping the idol of alcohol and it's consistently letting him down, but he doesn't know better. So he's getting drunk all the time and he would show up to work consistently hungover, consistently hungover. And while everybody else around him would dismiss him as just kind of scenery, right? I don't really wanna talk to this guy. Maybe even as an enemy, right? You're making our jobs a lot harder. You're showing up to work hungover. Your breath smells bad, right? Uh, It's no fun, right? And while everybody else dismissed him, there was one person. There was one person who believed radically that God actually loved my grandfather, that God was pursuing my grandfather. And he saw my grandpa as ministry. And so this guy who would show up drunk to work consistently, right? Here is his coworker pursuing him, praying for him. He was connecting with him. He would take his shifts when he would show up hungover consistently. He'd take his shifts, guys, my gosh. Um, and then he would invite him over to dinner, my, my grandma and my grandpa. And um, this was profound for them. This was key in their walk with Jesus. Is this gentleman and his wife who had been praying for my grandma and grandpa, invited them over for dinner, and they knew that my grandma and grandpa were heavy smokers. And so what did they do? They didn't say, hey, when you need to smoke, go outside, go away from us. What'd they do? They bought ashtrays and they put them in their house. Why? Because these people wanted my grandpa and grandma to know Jesus. They didn't, they were like, I don't care if you stink up my house. I just want you to know Jesus. So they pursued him. They pursued my grandma and my grandpa for months and months. And eventually, this gentleman was able to lead my grandpa to Christ. And I'm forever grateful for that man because if he, in, back in the 70s, like years ago, if he had not had the faith and the courage to engage my grandfather, if he would have dismissed him as scenery, if we would have just looked at him as an enemy, I wouldn't know Jesus. My whole family wouldn't know Jesus. And we would be slaves to idols apart from God's grace. Why do I share that? I share this story because, man, my prayer for you is that you would have that kind of gospel impact on somebody else. That as a result of your maybe sometimes awkward obedience, as a result of your faithfulness to share the gospel, to move toward lost people, that this person that maybe everybody else has dismissed, you would look at them and say, I see you as ministry. I believe that God loves you and wants to pursue you. That you would take the courage and the steps to move forward to that person and to share the gospel with them, that they would get saved and by God's grace, generations are changed. And so the question I wanna propose to you is what if you lived a life 
on mission with Jesus? What do you have to lose? Is Jesus more real to you than your fear? Man, I pray he is. I pray that even tonight as we get to worship together during our worship night, I pray that you'd be able to, to lift up your fears and say, Jesus, I just wanna be used by you. I don't wanna let fear get in the way. Jesus, I wanna be used. And so I wanna pray for us. Man, I wanna pray that in this room, God would use each one of you to have an incredible gospel impact. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for saving us from our worship of idols. God, our, our hearts were created for you and for you alone. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will give us lasting hope or, or happiness or uh, significance or satisfaction. God, we're looking, what we're looking for, God, we can find in you. And so Jesus, thank you for saving us and for welcoming us into your presence. And God, when it comes to evangelism, I just confess that I can get nervous. I confess that I can see people not as ministry, but I can see them often as enemies or scenery or machinery. God, I don't see them the way that you do. So God, help me to see them as ministry. And God, I pray for this room and myself as well. God, give us a heart that moves for the lost and a plan to move toward them. God, break our heart for what breaks yours. And so... Father, as we worship, I pray that the students in this room would lay down their fears. They surrender and worship to go out and live on mission. God, use this time. Use this time to raise up laborers. Pray this in your name. Amen.